hope those videos give you kind of a good overview of many of the things that uh, we're talking about and even um, if you've been keeping up with your reading, uh, kind of give us some perspective on things and uh, get us moving through the story here. Many of you do know, but some of you don't, that my wife is a survivor of two of the biggest tornadoes ever to hit the state of Alabama. Uh, here is a picture of one of them that took place in 1998. Don, go ahead and go to that. And so this is a picture of my wife, Emily. In 1998, she is standing outside of the bathroom of her fellowship hall in her church. This tornado came through on a Wednesday night, and the children were in the fellowship hall. Their fellowship hall is about the same size of ours. They have a full-size gym. And then at the end of it, there is there were some block bathrooms there and a kitchen back there. And so when the tornado came, they all went into the bathrooms that were blocked. The building itself was a metal building, and basically the tornado just peeled it back. You can see the beam there that is just bent and pushed back uh, on the bathrooms there. And so basically there was a full basketball court left outside in the open, and the bathrooms there. My wife's father held the bathroom door shut as the tornado um, went over and thankfully nobody was harmed in that building. But they lost a lot of family, or not family members, they didn't lose any direct family members. They lost church family members. Uh, the community lost a lot of people and so they lost friends and a number of other people had died in this tornado. It was, I think that still is the biggest tornado actually ever to hit the state of Alabama. And then in 2011, I was sleeping on my couch, and then all of a sudden my roommate ran downstairs, and he yelled, Josh, turn on the TV. And so I woke up from my nap, I turned on the TV, and I turned it to this man named James Spann, and uh, James Spann had taken off his coat, and he was frantically kind of going back and forth and pointing at the TV. He had rolled up his sleeves and he's pointing at the screen and all of a sudden he says, hey, uh, the tornado that's coming through, it, it has just gone over the corner of McFarland and 15th in Tuscaloosa. My heart sank. Emily lived a block away. She was my fiance at the time and so I immediately panicked and started calling and calling and calling and eventually I got through thankfully because I found out later that her parents didn't even get through because so many people were calling to try to get through to their kids and I discovered that she was okay but that tornado had gone just through her neighborhood and as far as I know, this is the second biggest tornado and one of the most, and the, one of the deadliest tornadoes ever to hit the state because it hit a number of big cities, including Tuscaloosa in the north of Birmingham area. Here's a picture of Emily outside of her house. Now, that doesn't look that bad. <laughs> um, thankfully, she was safe. Uh, and so basically you kind of have one or two options when you are around Emily when a storm is coming through. You either hide with her or you just get out of Dodge. Her house is the only house in the neighborhood that had its roof on it. And so here's a picture looking down her road. This is 
Alabama in the spring. Alabama in the spring has big trees, a lot of green everywhere, and you can see there's nothing but destruction. All the houses are without roofs. If you were to walk one road to the south of this, everything is flat. There are no buildings. There are no houses. There is nothing. It looked like a complete war zone. It looked like a bomb had gone off. What's interesting that day is when I woke up, I saw James Spann on the TV and I knew something was wrong because uh, this man, he had his sleeves rolled up, he wore suspenders, and so when he took off his jacket, you could see his suspenders, and I've discovered, I ordered these this week for this illustration, and I discovered these are off, these are an awful contraption. Uh, they're wedgie straps is what they are. I swear an older brother invented these for the younger brother. Um, Yeah, give yourself a wedgie when you put these on. But James Van wore suspenders, and when you could see them, and when his sleeves were wore up, and when he was frantic, you just knew something was wrong. You knew there was some danger in the area. And and what's really interesting is, like, everybody in Birmingham, they they knew James Van, and they, they, like, talked about him with reverence. Even Like he was like a father who took care of them. Hey, it's going to be hot and sunny today. Put on your sunscreen. The pollen is going to be really bad today. Make sure you take your Zyrtec. It's going to be a little chilly today. And in Birmingham terms, that means it's going to be under 70. So put on your jackets and your coats and get ready. Uh, but he, he took care of them. And so when a storm came too, you turned over to James Spann because he was going to tell you where to find shelter and where to go and how to be protected uh, because like any good weatherman, yes, they love the weather and they love forecasting it and telling you about it, but what they really like to do, especially in an area where tornadoes come through all the time, they want to make sure that people are safe. And so this man was basically a local celebrity. You ask people who James Spann is and they're going to tell you and they're going to have a big smile on their face and they're going to talk about him with kindness and compassion and love. Because this man saves lives. That's part of his job. Not just to tell you how, how nice it's going to be or how it's not going to be nice out. And so what in the world does this have to do with prophets and Elijah and all of that? Well, if you follow along this morning, I'm hoping that this illustration might stick with you. But as we're in the story together and as we're looking at the Bible and as we're trying to take a look at prophets and what they do and what God is doing with them, I want to remind you that we're in a place in Scripture and First and Second Kings and as it goes throughout the history of God's people where we are in a place where the people were told that, hey, you are going to be a blessing to the nations. You are going to be God's avenue to draw other people to Him through His love, His compassion, His kindness, and the way in which that you live and all of your obedience. People are going to see that and they're going to be drawn to God. But what happens is kind of the opposite. The people of God's hearts are actually prone to turn away from God. And so these people really aren't representing God at all. In fact, Um, they're fairly disobedient. Uh, They're not devoted to God at all. And we discover that they start to worship pagan gods. And so the the people in which God has set aside to worship Him aren't worshiping Him. And so 
what God does is he actually divides this nation. This was all one nation and he divides it into two. He divides the northern part into a kingdom called Israel and the southern part into an area called Judah. And it would seem that kind of all hope is lost because God had set aside all of them to carry out his promise. And he made this promise to David, by the way, that, hey, David, like your kingdom is going to last forever. You're going to rule and reign forever. Like your children are going to bless the world. And all of it seems lost, but you know, and if you were here last week, we talked about how God keeps a grandson of David alive, and so eventually Jesus can be born, and God basically shows us through Jesus that he doesn't even need us to keep his promise. Like God is going to be faithful, and God is going to love us, and and love people, and show his faithfulness to the world, whether or not we are faithful or not. We just get to join in to his story, and to be a part of it if we choose to do so. So this is where we're at in the story, and this is where we are headed And God is trying to get his people back. And this is one of the things that God does. He looks at a divided kingdom. He looks at the hearts of the people. And he's he's just not going to settle for it. Because he sees these people as his children. And so what God does is he sends prophets or messengers to the kings and to the kingdoms to draw people back to God, to turn their hearts back to God. In about a 208 year period, God sends at least nine major prophets in which we can read their stories, we can read their words to the kingdoms and to the kings as they are calling people back. And one of the kings and one of the queens in which were the most evil during this period of time and have turned their hearts from God uh, in a direction uh, that was more extreme than any of the other kings was a king by the name of Ahab. Ahab married a lady by the name of Jezebel who became his queen and Jezebel was very adamant about Ahab and the rest of the kingdom of Israel worshipping a god named Baal. Now, Baal worship um, and its very nature was polytheistic and so you worshipped a number of, number of gods. The Baal was kind of the head god um, and the primary god for the people to turn to. Not only that, Uh, but Baal was the god who controlled fertility. And so what this meant is that Baal actually controlled the weather. Uh, If it was supposed to rain, it had everything to do with Baal. And this was important if you are farmers and if you are dependent on the crops to bring life. And so the people's hearts were turned to Baal, um, who would send rain. Baal also had control over whether or not you would have Children, And so this was kind of the primary God of the people and of Jezebel and eventually Ahab. And so they started to worship Baal and God sends then Elijah to kind of put a stop to this. Because not only are they worshiping, worshiping Baal, um, but the practices, they're awful. Um, one of the number of the things that they do, they are, there's cult prostitution going on. Uh, they would mutilate themselves, and so they would cut themselves to get Baal's attention. And they would even sacrifice their children. So these were all practices that were now going on in God's kingdom, and God had prohibited all of these 
things. And so God is very angry and he's very upset and he's just not going to have it. And so what God does is he sends prophets to the kings to warn them, to turn them back. And one of these prophets is named Elijah. Now, Elijah himself was um, the anti uh, Ahab and Jezebel, or anti Baal worshiper. His name actually meant Yahweh is my God. And so his name actually means Yahweh is my God and Yahweh is the only God. And the way in which he goes and confronts Ahab and Jezebel is he goes to them and he says, Ahab, here's the thing. It's not going to rain. You can do whatever you want. Your prophets can do whatever they want. But it's not going to rain. God told me this. And this is a direct assault on Baal and their worship of Baal because they believe that Baal controls the weather, that he basically has control over creation. And, and Elijah says, no. Only God does. And it will not rain until God tells me to come back to you and tell you when it's going to rain. We can assume that there are a number of other prophets that are behind Elisha because Jezebel sends out a decree. Basically, she wants all of the prophets of God and all the prophets that are behind Elijah himself to be killed. And so prophets go into hiding at this time. So they won't be killed. We're told that there are more than 50 prophets that are hiding. We know, therefore, that the people who worship God truly here are a minority because they know that if they worship God, that they will be killed along with the prophets. But God then comes back to Elijah and he says, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. He says, I'm going to send rain here in a couple days uh, to your region. But before I do that, You need to go to Ahab and you're going to tell him that I'm going to cause it to rain. But you are going to challenge the prophets of Baal. So you're going to go to these prophets and you're going to challenge them. And what you're going to do is you're going to have the prophets of Baal. You're going to have them make an altar. You're going to have them cut up a bull and put it on it. And they have to basically pray for this altar to catch fire. And so Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, I'm going to challenge your prophets. 450 prophets are challenged and they show up to this challenge. We're told the purpose of this challenge in 1 Kings 18 is this. Elijah asks the people this. This is what he wants them to do here. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see, what's taken place here is that Ahab and Jezreel, they've worshipped Baal and they've worshipped a number of other gods. And so, uh, as they've done this together, something in society and something in the kingdom has gone on in which we call syncretism. Now, that's a word you can understand. You've maybe never heard it before. You have. But basically, all it means is that you are mixing two different religions or adding things from two different religions to make one. And so what the people have done here throughout the kingdom is that they have mixed the worship of the one true God with the worship of Baal and the gods in the surrounding cultures to make what they think is one religion. 
but Yahweh, or but Elijah here is saying you've got to choose. You, you can't worship both God and Baal. You can't worship the God who brought you out of Egypt and these gods of the surrounding culture. You can't mix with them in your worship. It's got to be true. It's got to be pure. It's got to be real. And so he's challenging them. He's saying choose here. Because here's the thing. They have moved from monotheism, worshiping one God, to polytheism, worshiping another God. Now, they have, by their very nature, broken the first two commandments. To have no other gods before God and not to worship any idols. To worship Baal, you would set up idols and images and you would worship those. And so Elijah is challenging here the culture. He's saying you can't do this. One or the other. Syncretism here was introduced by Jeroboam. If you can remember last week or if you were here last week. Now Jeroboam decided to worship the gods in the surrounding culture uh, to separate himself from Judah. He did it for power. Because he didn't want the people in his kingdom to worship the same God as the southern kingdom so that they wouldn't be reunited so that he could regain or sustain power. Ahab, on the other hand, is worshiping Baal for pragmatism. And what I mean by that is that Ahab is worshipping the gods of the surrounding culture for protection. He believes that if he absorbs the culture and allows outside influences to dictate the direction of his kingdom, that he will be protected by those people who agree on what life should be like and who should be worshipped. But... Elijah is trying to call them back to the one true God. So, Elijah asks them this question. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people, this is how they respond. And the people did not answer a word. Now, why wouldn't they answer? They're scared. They, they, they're afraid. They're afraid of Ahab. They're afraid of Jezebel. They know that the prophets of God and those who worship God, they're in hiding. They could be killed. They could be persecuted. They could be outcast in the society. So, they want to see what happens first. They want to see what takes place in the challenge. Mm-hmm. The prophets of Baal go first. Elijah prompts them. He says, you guys go first. They set up the altar. They put the wood there. They put the cow on there. And they start dancing around for hours and hours and nothing is happening. And so Elijah starts to taunt them a little bit. And then they start cutting themselves. And so they're bleeding now as they limp around the altar hoping that Baal will do something to strike this up and Elijah actually even starts to taunt them and he says hey is Baal out golfing or is he relieving himself he actually says that is he sleeping and eventually these prophets they give up and 
Then it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah tells them, he says, come close, everyone. He says, I want you to watch this. And what Elijah does is he builds an altar with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He puts the wood on there. He cuts the cow up. He puts it on there and spreads it apart. And then he says, bring me some water. And so they bring him some water and they douse the altar there with water just to show that this has got to be a miracle for this thing to lie on fire. And then what does he do? He prays. And this is his prayer. He said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known to this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. So, what happens? It catches on fire. God sends fire and the altar catches on fire after he hears Elijah's prayer. Now here's the thing about Elijah's prayer. Elijah's prayer shows us the heart of a prophet. And what God does when the people are attentive to the heart of a prophet. What Elijah's prayer clearly shows us here is that a prophet will always call you back to worship the one true God. You see that in his prayer. He will always call you to worship the one true God and he will always call you to turn back to this God. And so the altar is on fire and here's what happens as Elijah is praying for the altar to catch on fire, for people to worship the one true God and for people to turn to the one true God. This is how the people respond. They weren't sure what to say at first, but here's how they respond. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They have now turned from Baal worship. They have turned from trying to blend into the culture to seeing that God is Lord through this miracle and through the work of Elijah, who is a prophet of God. In other words, He is a messenger from God. This is what messengers from God do. And this is how the people of God respond to messengers of God. The Lord, He is God. They turn to the one true God. Now, this is a story of a prophet and him at work. And yet there are a number of ways in which prophets work, in which prophets speak. Um, This morning, and as you read through the Old Testament, you discover that God uses prophets in a number of different ways. And I want to share with you, in our application time, basically the five ways in which prophets speak to people, in which God uses messengers, and God has used messengers in the Old Testament to talk about the one true God and to turn people back to God. And so here are five messages from God's messengers that... I believe we still need to hear and be attentive to today. And the first is this, is that a prophet always shows up and says, God says. So a prophet speaks on behalf of God. When you open up your Old Testament and you begin to read about a prophet, they say, thus says the Lord. They believe that they are speaking on the authority of God and not their own. When 
Elijah goes to Ahab, he's not going to Ahab and saying, hey, you know what, I, I think God is displeased with everything that's going on. Um, would you and Jezebel, would, would you mind like turning the kingdom back to worshiping God? When Elijah goes to Ahab, he says, God says. Like, this is God's word for you. And this is what we see through all of the prophets in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. One of the words, actually, that translates from the Hebrew into prophets is Navi. Navi means to announce. And so prophets are announcers of God's word. And the best way that I can kind of illustrate this to you in a human way is like the, the president's secretary of uh, press, the, the person who comes out, and it basically they represent the president and his words and his thoughts and his actions and everything he does. And so when the press secretary comes out on behalf of the president um, each and every day or whenever they're supposed to come out, you are supposed to take their words as the president's words and thoughts and so forth. Well, this is what a prophet is doing when they are speaking on God's behalf. So how do we apply this then to our own life when we are saying or trying to hear a word from God? Well, this is where biblical preaching comes in. Biblical preaching is the preacher coming to you and reading the word of God and saying God says. And the way that the preacher can get this right is actually reading and teaching the scriptures for what they are. And so, as a church, if we are going to be under basically a prophetic ministry, we want to be under ministries and words that teach the Word of God and allow God to speak through us through God's Word. The second thing a prophet does, and the second way a prophet delivers a message from God is they call people to remember their relationship with God. They call people to remember their relationship with God. What's really interesting about the story of Elijah and the twelve prophets, or this is one of the things that's interesting about Elijah um, and the prophets of Baal, is Elijah built an altar to God using twelve stones. Now, Elijah and the rest of Israel and Judah were not supposed to set up altars outside of Jerusalem anywhere at this point. And yet Elijah sets up an altar outside of Jerusalem to pray to God at. Why would he do that? Well, he uses 12 stones here. Later, we see that God destroys this altar. He gets rid of it. But there's purpose behind this, I believe, and there's a message in this for us to see. These 12 stones are representing the 12 tribes of Israel. We know this is true. So why would he, why would he do that? He is trying to remind the people of the relationship with God. God had called the, 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 the tribes here, He's called Israel to be a blessing, to work on His behalf so that the nations would see God. He is trying to call them to remember their relationship with God. He is the one who has brought you up out of slavery. He is the one who gave you your freedom to begin with. Right? He has called the church to bless the nations here. Moses, who was considered the greatest prophet, by the way, of God before Jesus. Do you know what he does before he gives the Ten Commandments? Like, he doesn't just show up off the mountain and give the people the Ten Commandments. Before he reads a commandment, he says, remember. He says, 
Remember that God has removed you from slavery. That He has freed you from Egypt. He talks about their relationship first. And He says, because God has removed you from, from freedom, because God has saved you, now, let's talk about how to be obedient to God. Then He goes into the Ten Commandments. This is why it's important to us and for us here to look back on our own lives. Remember your salvation experience. Remember that God has saved you. Sometimes it's important for us to look back on our baptism and to think about that. Everybody, like if you've been baptized, just, just look at me here. Right? God has called you. He has saved you. He has brought you out to be His child. To follow Him. Not only that, but you, maybe it was here, and maybe it was somewhere else, but you have taken the time to dedicate yourself and to tell everyone else that was there in the church that you are His child, that you belong to God, that you have a relationship with Him. You see, as prophets call you to obedience, they aren't calling you to obedience to some God that you don't know, to some God that you aren't saved by, to some God that hasn't showed up in your life. They are calling you to a God in which you have recognized and you have stood before God and other people and have said, I am His child. I have given my life to Him. I have died to my sin. And I have been raised with Christ. There's power there. If if you're struggling with obedience, you might need to remember your baptism. You might need to remember your commitment. The third thing a prophet does and before I get to these next two, I'm just going to let you know, like, these are the two that, um, two things that a prophet does that we just don't like. Right? We don't like it in the church and we don't like it outside of the church. But, but God uses prophets in this way clearly. And so the third way God uses a prophet is a prophet will show up and they will tell you that you have turned from God. This is one of the things that a prophet does. Right, and so I'm just going to ask you, like, real quick, real quick question, like, how to go? How to go the last time somebody showed up in your life and said, "Hey, yo, um, do you realize that you you turned from God? Uh, do you realize like what you're doing is outside the will of the Lord? Do you, do you realize that you're devoted over here to?" to other gods, to other passions, to other loves. Like, like how to go for them. How dare you? How dare you call me out? Right? How dare you point that out? Like, don't you know that, that, that Jesus said, take the, the log out of your own eye before you speak in to mine? Right? That, that one of, don't judge me. Ahab and... Jezebel, how'd they respond? Kill them all. Right? 
Maybe, maybe that's kind of your response. And we come with this idea like, right, well, Jesus said, just take, don't judge. Don't take the log out of your own eye. But like, as Jesus continues, though, like he's not implying that somebody shouldn't speak into your life and, you know, call you out on some things. Jesus is just trying to make the person who goes and approaches you about something a little more humble as they do it. He doesn't say not to do it. He just says, hey, if you're going to do it to somebody else, there needs to be some introspection as well. Jesus actually gives us some tools and encourages people to speak into other people's lives and show them where they've turned from God. This is one of the things that a prophet does and that we have a hard time receiving this. And yet, a word, two words for the prophets in the Old Testament is both Jose and Roja. Hosea means visionary. Roa means seer. Now, in a way, this means that they can kind of see things that you don't. In other words, that they can kind of see into the future. But prophets actually do very little. They do a decent amount in the Old Testament. But that's not their primary purpose, is just to see into the future. Uh, but rather, they can basically see what God sees in a number of ways. And sometimes we need a prophet or somebody that can speak into our lives, that can see things that we don't. Because sometimes we just don't see, <laughs> we don't see the sin in our life. It can be for a number of reasons. Like it can be because we just don't want to, right? Um, it can be because maybe we don't know. Like maybe if you're new to Christianity, um, you, you might just not know like something is, is wrong or that that God is not pleased with something. So you just need somebody to say, hey, like, hey, do you know, like the word says this? But God sends people to speak into our lives because we're all vulnerable. You know, my wife, she could have died in either one of those storms. She was vulnerable to the storm. If she didn't think she was, right, if she wasn't in the bathroom or in the hallway, she could have been hurt really badly in this storm. We're all vulnerable to turn from God. We're all vulnerable to worship idols. In other words, to worship images or something or someone else that isn't God. Just think about it for a moment. Right? Compare, um, for instance, how much time, energy, and money you spend on things that are not eternal. Right? They have very little value when you really step back and look at them. And now think about the time, the energy, the money that you spend on the very things that you know will have eternal value in this world. I don't know about you and how um, your kind of family get-togethers work now, but uh, every year when we celebrate Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is kind of one of my uh, kind of one of my favorite holidays because I feel like a lot of good food and low pressure. Like, right? Like, so you just kind of show up as a family, you bring food, you just hang out, you eat, you don't have to exchange gifts or anything like that, and so you don't have to worry about if anybody likes anything, but maybe your food. And um, in our family, in the past, we would all come together and we'd usually stay for a while and play games and hang out. But one of the things that I've noticed is because like the stores and stuff, they're open on, on Thanksgiving now, is that we'll hang out and we'll eat and then people kind of like trickle out to go shopping or maybe to go somewhere else or something. And 
I'm thinking like this is really odd. Like we don't stay and and um, kind of build these relationships anymore. But instead, like people are leaving so that they can buy the Christmas gifts for the next time we get together. And you know, as I think about this, like it just seems like we have it backwards. You know, because if I were to ask you, right, like what's more important, the relationship or the gift? What would you say? The relationship, right? Like not a not a trick question. And yeah, you know, kind of, it seems like, and I, I'm sure your families are the same way, like none of us are perfect, but it just seems like we're putting the relationship in second place and the gift in first. And in a way, that's what idolatry is. It's putting things that should be first place, God, in second place. And we are, we're all prone to do this sort of thing. The next day after Thanksgiving, right, on Black, Black Friday, or whatever, you know, maybe they'll shut down the stores and so what do people do? They get up early and they stand they stand in line uh, for hours just to get in a store. Uh, I mean, when is the last time that somebody has stood outside the doors of our church uh, to get in here? Oh yeah, I remember. The rummage sale, right? Yeah. Well, a prophet will basically ask, will say, hey, what's first place in your life? Have you turned? He might even point it out in ways that make you uncomfortable. The second thing, or really the fourth thing that a prophet will do, is they'll bring bad news. Right? This is something else that we typically dislike. But like a weatherman... They will show up and they will say, hey, there's danger. There's a storm coming. Like something, something is wrong in your life and in the people around you. Like something needs to change. You need to go and find safety or you'll die in the storm. This is another area that we just have usually trouble receiving. Even as a church and outside of the church, like, right? Like, there's no way that God would be against me in any way. There's no way that right, there's trouble coming. I, I don't believe you. But we're told in the Bible that, hey, the wages of sin are death. If you're going to continue to live the way that you're living, and be satisfied with the sin in your life, the prophet will tell you, death, danger, find cover, go find shelter. Don't ignore that. This is why I had the suspenders on this morning. Right? Because prophets save lives. They're like a weatherman. In that sense. They're pointing out the danger is on the way. But we treat them differently than we do a weatherman. If a, if a weatherman is pointing at the screen and they are telling you that danger is on the way because of where you live, what are, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn it off? I don't want to listen to him. Right? Forget Forget that. I didn't like him anyways. 
No. You're turning them up. What? Where's it at? What do I need to do? Where do I need to go? Just be careful to treat a message from someone who is talking about danger. Be careful to treat it like Ahab and Jezebel. Just try to get rid of this person. Try to get rid of that voice. Try not to listen to it. You might need to do the exact opposite. You might need to turn it up a little bit. You might need to listen a little closer. You might need to find out what to do and where to turn. Because they may be saving you from moral and spiritual danger. The final and fifth thing a prophet does, and thank God for this, they bring good news. They're going to bring bad news. They're going to tell you what is going to happen with sin in your life. But a prophet always brings good news. And here's what a prophet does. is He tells you where the danger is, but he also tells you where the safety is. He tells you where to go. He tells you what to do. He tells you how to avoid the danger. And one of the prophets that does this beautifully in the Old Testament is by a man named Hosea. Hosea is called to not only to show Israel where the danger is at and why they need to turn, but he's there to show them how much God loves them. And God actually asked Hosea to illustrate this with his life. And I'm just going to tell you, you're going to thank God that you are not Hosea this morning. Because what God asked Hosea to do, he asked him to go marry a lady named Gomer. All right? Now, thank God you no know Gomers are in here. Thank God that I know of that you don't have to marry Gomer. The name is weird, but Gomer is often also a prostitute. And so God is asking Elijah, he says, go and marry this prostitute because basically she, your marriage is going to be an illustration of my relationship with Israel itself. They have prostituted themselves out. They continue to turn from me. They don't love me, although I love them. And so I want you to go and marry this Lady, because as a prophet, I just want you to know how much I love you and I love Israel. And so, Hosea goes to marry Gomer, and of course, Gomer turns back to the Lord. She has a perfect relationship with Hosea, and everything's okay, right? No. Hosea marries Gomer, and Gomer continues to do her night job. They have a couple kids together and she continues to go out at night and work. And this breaks Hosea's heart. He doesn't know what to do. But what he does know is that he's not going to give up on, Ho- on Gomer. Hosea sticks by her. God tells him, continue to stick by her. He had every right to leave. Right as she's cheating on him and as she's gone all the time. Well, one day, Hosea is sitting around and God comes to Hosea and he says, here's what I want you to do, Hosea. He says, I want you to go find Gomer and I want you to bring her back. Now, we're not giving a, given a ton of details beyond that. But what I can imagine is that Hosea then leaves and he goes door to door looking for Gomer. His Gomer, are you, are you in here? He goes to the abandoned buildings looking for Gomer. And then finally, 
he ends up at an old rundown hotel and he walks up to the office manager and he says, hey, does Gomer work here? And the office manager says, well, yes, she does. But you need an appointment. Hosea then pays a few bucks so that he can go and have some time with his wife so that he can deliver this message. Gomer, I love you. God loves you. Will you come home with me? Will you come home with me? Look around, Gomer. This is no way to live. Come home. I love you. It's safe in my home. Let us pray. Father, this morning, we pray that we receive a message from you. We pray, Father, that you use messengers that speak the word of God, that remind us of our relationship with God. Father, we pray that we humbly receive any warnings in areas of our life in which we have turned from God. We pray, Father, that we understand That when we are not following God, there is a message of bad news for us. Father, more than anything this morning, I pray, Father, that we reflect on the good news that God has for us. That He loves us. That He searches for us. That no matter what we've done or where we've gone or how we've behaved in the past, That we are loved infinitely by God. We know this because you sent your Son out to find us. You sent Him to our doorstep. You became flesh to show us how much you love us, Father. And so this morning, if there is anyone who needs to come home, I pray that nothing stops them. I pray, Father, that they receive your love, that they receive your forgiveness, that they receive your compassion, that they receive your warning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.